welcome to this roundup a freedom to explore human biology human brain human life and the ecosystem is a wonderful thing now along with democratization of information tools and technology over the years biohacking to neurohacking and life hacking the emerging decentralized do it yourself self biology and brain simulation movement brings nations a great potential for solving the complex problems facing humanity this is especially promising in a time when we are no longer confined to what nature must offer as the advances in science and technology has given us the capability to even create living things while what nature has given is still the foundation of our natural human biological ecosystem we the humans are now able to build on this foundation and create a man made synthetic bio ecosystem of our own desire and definition the time is almost here where the ability to create or manipulate human life and its potential seems to be restricted only by the imagination as we will now be able to not only manipulate existing human body cells tissues and systems but also build any cell organism or biological species up from scratch so when the emerging biohacking neurohacking or life hacking practice involves not only manipulating human systems but also genes and brain with or without sufficient understanding of its impact the promise and perils of this emerging do it yourself movement needs to be properly understood and evaluated to discuss the promise and perils of biohacking neurohacking and life hacking i'm delighted to welcome timo arena to this roundup timo is the chief biohacker and chairman of the board at biohacker center based in finland he is also the co-author of the best-selling biohackers handbook for optimizing sleep exercise nutrition mind and work with technological and biological tools and co-author of the biohacker stress manual for optimizing the human nervous system he is also the recipient of the leonardo award under the like title of humanity in digitization welcome timo we are so very honored to have you on this round thank you very much i'm honored as well yes wonderful Wonderful, Timur. So let let's begin by talking about the democratization of biology, the do-it-yourself moment. First, we have begun to see emerging evidence, increasing interest from the social and technological sciences in the concept of decentralized systems, the decentralized mindset, and collective intelligence to understand complex human system. So as we take a step forward towards decentralization of biology. where is this trend taking us where are we going so what is happening right now is that uh tools and technologies including also scientific experiments and methods uh that used to be only in the hands of a selected few are now available to the general public um so if you give, if i give you an example of gene sequencing 10 years ago gene uh, sequencing your genes would have cost 10 million US dollars now you can get it for $1000 there is companies like 23andme that can do it for you a couple of 100 bucks 
So it's readily available uh, for a lot of people to gain deeper insight into their bodies. Now, if you're talking about like modifying the human body, um, obviously, you know, uh, you can do that with so many different methods from nutrition to supplements to, um, and so on. But there is also this uh, gene manipulation technology called CRISPR-Cas9 that enables you to uh, do very basic, I, I have to say, you can modify a human embryo with this technology. But uh, if you want to do some very, very simple uh, experiments with bacteria, for example, uh, you can get a kit for $159. So we are also talking about accuracy um, of many of these things that's starting from measuring things in the human body to to different interventions they're becoming much, much more accurate. So CRISPR-Cas9 is much, much more accurate than gene manipulation techniques were years ago. So a lot of people have misconceptions when it comes to, you know, working on artificial life forms and or modifying existing code. It's actually extremely error prone. You very easily don't get the result you're looking for. So it sounds, on theory, it sounds like amazing, like uh, a huge threat. But most of that stuff will not work because the accuracy of this technology is not where it is. And also, human uh, and uh, any kind of biological organism is so complex that making those interventions, um, we might want to try to turn off a gene that increases the risk for a heritage disease. But you might be turning on another condition. So it's a complex system and you can't easily understand it. So what we are now using this technology for pretty much in the world is for modifying fungus and bacteria to do what we want to uh, to produce certain compounds or to uh, clean the soil from from uh, toxic waste or and so on. So some simple organisms. Now, when it comes to quantified self technologies, like I have this ring here, these extremely accurate sensors, and this ring can track my sleep quality, my the stages of my sleep, my body temperature, the amount I'm active during the day, how it's sedentary. It can track my nervous system, heart rate, recovery. And it can combine all the data with machine learning algorithms to better understand how I differ from my where, where I'm usually at. So if I'm well rest, rest and recovered or if, if I'm kind of uh, running myself um, or burning the candle from both ends. And, uh, well, with this technology, like it used to be sleep laboratory studies cost like several thousand dollars a night. Um, now you can get a device like this for like 300 bucks and you can do that for five years every night. So the cost of doing things comes down. It was Buckminster Fuller, an American architect, who said that um, when he studied complex systems and the world today and looked at scientific advancements and exponential technologies, he noticed that what we are heading towards is dematerialization. So things that used to be super expensive material are becoming inexpensive and immaterial. So we are able to work on so many things nowadays purely in digital. So if you design an airplane or building, or you try to understand metabolic pathways in, in a biological organism, you can create a simulation and you can 
uh, you can do that so much more cheaply and and there is more accurate sensors there's more accurate technologies cheaper um, cost efficient so the Moore's law that enables us in terms of computing to double our capacity every 18 months or uh, performance uh, number of transistors on a, on a chip is also kind of affecting not just affecting but you can see the same kind of process happening on other systems as well and Buckminster Fuller called this not just dematerialization but ephemeralization that was his word for it and this takes us to a very exponential trajectory that next 10 years um, many of things that we just saw in movies or we see only in the labs today will be commonplace. Uh, that being uh, systems through which you can telepathically control computers, systems that are uh, extending or augmenting or existing senses, vision system, hearing, all of that. I mean, we already see kind of example, even consumer technologies of this, but it will come faster than we think and will disrupt existing industries change life forever yes that's very true now that's a good uh, overview and summary that you gave about all these different uh, developments and happen that are happening you know in this world now you talked about CRISPR technology and uh, I you rightfully said that you know there is not not that we still don't know you try to turn on a gene and uh, some turn off a gene and something else will turn on and we don't know the accuracy we don't know the impact we don't know what kind of uh, uh, reactions would happen or risk you know would emerge because of uh, manipulate trying to manipulate the genes so there are a lot of you know concerns we can try you know creating organisms from scratch to do you know simple tasks that we are trying to have them achieve but the synthetic biology the because of this, you know, CRISPR technology, it brings us lots of risk and rewards, but at the same time, it also gives us a lot of potential, you know, to uh, ma manipulate or create things and uh, manage a lot of, you know, risks that we humans face currently. And if we, we can talk about the biohacking, you know, a little bit further in the discussion, but before we go there, what I would like to talk about the neurohacking because it seems that it is uh, being, you know, very widely used. There are a lot of machines that are available uh, for neurohacking. There are a lot of fewer tools available. So what is the status of brain enhancement using uh, these neurohacking tools at the moment? Right. Um, do you drink coffee? Yes, I do. Yes. So, I mean, most people are doing neurohacking as we speak. Yes. And they are enhancing their cognitive capabilities, alertness, and focus um, with thousands of years old beverages. And they don't think much about it. Um, but, you know, it's one of the most powerful tools that we have today. So food, nutrition, different ways to enhance cognitive capabilities, they exist already today. And, um, well, you have things like pharmaceutical or nutraceutical interventions, uh, things like nootropics that enable you to enhance your cognitive capabilities. Um, so there's two kind of main approaches to it. One of them is to kind of oil the system, uh, support the uh, neurotransmitters, the pathways that you know generate brain activity. Uh, that's more subtle 
kind of support. It might enable you to have better energy levels for longer. It might be about supporting your basic brain, brain chemistry. You might not necessarily notice anything subjectively changing, uh, but if we did cognitive tests over time, you might notice an improvement. Um, now, you have also things that have very noticeable effects. And uh, coffee obviously has a very noticeable effect. Uh, matcha tea has a very noticeable effect. Um, but then there's pharmaceutical drugs uh, that are being used also on the market. Things like modafinil, which is uh, prescribed for um, shift workers and for narcolepsy, is being used as a wakefulness agent, but also as, a, as something that enhances cognitive capabilities. Uh, what I think about this is like uh, there was a study that listed, for example, this particular pharmaceutical as most likely the most effective and safest nootropic on the market. Um, to me, uh, that's a bit misguided because when it comes to a lot of drugs that we use, even things like um, painkillers, we're still discovering side effects and new aspects of them. Like painkillers were shown to recently paracetamol to dampen emotional control. Um, and uh, I mean, many, many things like Viagra originally was designed for something else, but what it's used today. So uh, the human system is extremely complicated machinery and working with the brain that we don't really understand very well today. is like tinkering with a black box and and you have an input, but you don't see much what's going on inside. And then you have an output, you try to measure it. It's it's like seeking for a needle in the haystack in the dark. And um, so to me, uh, what I'm kind of, uh, what I advocate instead of like going for these things that very obvious effects is to go for things that are more subtle and has been used for thousands of years to support uh, our cognitive capabilities probably safer and more balanced um, interventions for sure. And I mean, in terms of cognitive enhancement, you can also have uh, electroceuticals. You can activate the same areas of the brain that might be um, activated when you use something like NSAIDs or uh, antidepressants or things like coffee. You could, through electricity, you could activate those parts of the brain. So in the end, like taking any kind of pharmaceutical or nutraceutical is uh, you're trying to increase activity in a certain part of the brain, increase blood flow, uh, reduce some areas. Um, and some things that work for some other person might not work for another person. That's the problem with a lot of drugs that try to alter the brain. You know, we don't yet know, like even on a theoretical level, why antidepressants work in some cases when it doesn't in some other case. So statistically, it's a, it's a, there is no 100% silver bullet for cognitive enhancement right now. But you can, you can do a little bit. Most of the enhancement you see in people who have cognitive decline or they have a malfunctioning brain, you can use these things to restore function and obviously, relatively, they will perform better. So many of these drugs are actually um, neuroprotective uh, by nature so um, they, they tend to um, clinically uh, reduce 
risk for getting Alzheimer's disease. They might uh, statistically reduce uh, risk for cognitive decline. They might um, improve blood sugar control. They might uh, improve recovery from a stroke. Um, so most of the benefit you get from cognitive enhancers is really to sick people. If you're a healthy person, the relative improvement is is not very drastic. But then again, um, there there is so many different ways to do this. I mean, if you want to enhance your cognition, the most studied, most effective way to do that is exercise. If you exercise your large muscles, you grow your cognitive capabilities. Also, the parts of the brain that are uh, dealing with certain functions are are being enhanced things like meditation also enhance um, things like emotional control and cognitive capabilities it's the only way really in a wakeful state where you can foc- uh, train your focus uh, properly and it will also increase the size of connectivity in certain parts of the brain that are related to things like emotional control or, or just a sensory experience so um, you can change the brain in so many different ways. You can enhance so many different ways. It's such a complex system right now and we can't directly um, study it in a living human person ethically. So that kind of sets us back a little bit with it. Yes, no, absolutely. You know, I, I, I hear there are also some binaural beats that people are using you know, in large numbers to kind of manipulate the brain waves for optimal human function. So uh, what, are, what is your understanding of these different waves that uh, brain waves that people are trying to manipulate or rather, you know, balance like delta, theta, alpha and beta or gamma waves, you know, using these binary waves, is it effective? So uh, coming out of uh, EEG studies where you're studying the electric activity of the brain, we've noticed that there's these different frequencies of brain waves that are related to different states of consciousness. It's a huge generalization, but basically that's that's what's going on. So uh, things like meditative states, uh, more creative states might be accessible if you have higher theta uh, brain activity. Now, uh, we, we spend most of our time in high alpha, um, in a, in a very wakeful state, uh, very fast brain frequencies, things like coffee enhance that. Um, but uh, then again, when you're looking at it uh, from the perspective of how you can manipulate those brain waves, I mentioned meditation is one. Now, you mentioned binaural beats. So that's something where you are using a certain frequency of sound in both ears and there's a certain difference in hertz, which is reflective to the uh, brainwave um, uh, frequency that you want to achieve. So the, the theory goes that your brain will synchronize to that sound. So if the difference is 10 hertz, which is closer to theta brainwaves, you will be able to increase theta brainwaves by listening to a, um, a very meditative track that uh, uh, implements this technology. Personally, I'm using it because I know this subjectively uh, great benefits of doing something like that to um, get ready for any kind of presentation or meeting or whatever to be more relaxed uh, when making decisions. Um, I'm using it in city environments that are busy and full of stressful signals and people. And I'm, I'm just like zoning myself out in binaural beats with noise-canceling headphones. 
I, I find it useful. Now, binaural beats, it works if um, the background white noise and whatever comes with it is something that your brain doesn't recognize. It's kind of novel. So it's not music or ambient or, or some stuff that is familiar to you, but it's constantly changing in nature. Things like uh, the trees doing their sounds or the water, uh, uh, the river flowing, um, all these kind of sounds, uh, they don't have a clear structure. So our brains kind of like to bath in that and uh, relax. Um, in nature, the things that consistently stick out or patterns that you can e easily recognize as language or some kind of communication or, or music, uh, you very easily, uh, they, they take your attention. Now, if you are able to kind of uh, re reset your, your brain by, by having things that it can't clearly recognize or doesn't kind of uh, notice any difference there. Silence, by the way, is not very relaxing for organisms. Complete silence is stressful also uh, slightly because in nature, when it's silent, it's usually the storm is coming. So it's having some kind of little background noise is already kind of wide noise is relaxing. Putting some binaural beats on the top really helps then to gain a more relaxed meditative state. And um, this, the studies are a bit controversial when it comes to the effectiveness really on the efficacy of binaural beats. Uh, but like I said, I mean, even though the studies don't show yet uh, exactly how they work or if there is even an effect, uh, personally, I get a lot of benefit from it just for relaxation, better than classical music. Yes, no, I mean, relaxation, I, I have tried some of them too, but if you see, if you do Google search, you will see, see all kinds of uh, benefits, you know, people claim that binaural beats for weight loss, binaural beats for, you know, all kinds of different, you know, uh, disease remedies. So that's what, you know, I would like to see if there is an actual truth to any of that. I mean, for relaxation is absolutely, you know, amazing. That yeah. Tried. yeah, people can claim all kinds of things on the internet and... I haven't seen any studies that show that binaural beats have any any clear um, studied effect that can be fully replicated. The studies have been very small so far, but definitely the effects of music for relaxation, stress management, increasing heart rate variability has been noticed in studies, uh, well-designed studies. Um, usually also music that is familiar to you has been considered uh, in, in studies to be beneficial for relaxation, increasing heart rate variability. So, yeah, there is, there is support for these things, but when it comes to things like weight loss or curing cancer, no. Yes, I understand that. I mean, uh, people would like to hope and people may, you know, think that while doing something they actually got benefit we'll have to evaluate much more you know in uh, in depth whether those benefits actually occurs and again you know these are uh, very subjective things too i mean uh, what works for one person does may not work for another person like you said in the beginning so these are very individualized customized uh, uh, approaches and treatments that may work or may not work for you know everyone so uh, but it's interesting to see that there is a very intense effort going on in creating all different kinds of binary bits and uh, on some of the YouTube uh, channels I saw there were like millions like 10 15 20 million uh, views on all this and people are you know 
com- giving very good uh, uh, recommendations about this. So yeah, there could yeah. be truth. Who knows about that? I mean, uh, unless unless we try and we see the difference of ourselves, we don't know if actually you know if that is valid, you know, claim or whether those are going to yeah. work for you. Know, yeah. But definitely, definitely, you can see some changes in brain imaging studies. So there is some effect. Uh, to be ba- able to understand what the effect is and how that might differ from one individual to the other and might need more more research. Uh, when it comes to, you know, stuff from YouTube, I would recommend to go for like real professional, uh, if you want to really try like binaural beats, I would try something like brain.fm um, and they actually use actual research behind that to to generate those soundscapes because you can you can create music or soundscapes and claim that it's binaural beats. But things like Brain FM is constantly changing what you're hearing, so you won't be able to recognize the same pattern as you listen to it. There's all kinds of generators that are able to do this as well. Um, but definitely, I mean, what what these are working with is your internal feedback loops and um, kind of triggering things there, uh, potentially activating the default mode network. The default mode network in the brain is is key to creativity and uh, uh, it's it's something that the brain kind of likes to be in and uh, binaural beats activates the default mode network it's great because right now what we have in today's society is a constant bombardment of signals that catch our attention and activates our sympathetic nervous system becomes stressed easily you're overloaded by signals uh, if these kind of tools make it faster for for people to kind of let go of uh, uh, active participation in uh, the, the sensory overload. I mean, it's good for us. Um, yeah, so so I, I'm not surprised why these tracks might be so popular. People probably need something like that in today's world. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you, because you there are absence, there is an absence of nature in them. If you If you live in nature, you don't need binaural beats. Yes, very true. But not everyone lives in nature, you know, you, you and I both know that. So, yes, they do have benefits. I have uh, listened to some of those uh, beats myself and they are very calming, very relaxing. I haven't uh, uh, experienced all different, you know, beats that are out there, but I have listened to some uh, in recent weeks and uh, I do see some benefits in that. But uh, having said that, I also uh, came across some uh, information about the people use electric current to activate all their, you know, neural pathways and, you know, uh, nerve cells. Is that something, is that a trend Do you see picking up? Yeah, you're, you're probably referring to transcranial yes. uh, uh, TDC, TDCS, transcranial uh, direct current stimulation. And when it comes to TDCS, yes, that is uh, definitely has 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 used so they have clinically approved t- uh, certain tdcs implementations for uh treating depression it's great in a world where where depression which is now being treated with pharmaceuticals with not very high efficacy always and uh it it, it has shown great potential great application in that and uh TDCS has also been studied for addiction. It has been studied for uh, food cravings. Has been studied for a bunch of different uh, 
problems like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. Uh, those more with mixed results. And uh, uh, there is a Cochrane review that found evidence that TDCS can uh, be useful for certain conditions like Parkinson's disease to, to be able to deal with everyday life. So these are, I mean, most of the research and studies go into treating disease and conditions. When we're talking about healthy people, there's less research usually on these things. Um, like I mentioned about nootropics, most of them are studied on sick people who have cognitive decline. And now uh, there might be effects that seem to be great, uh, but it might be that in a completely healthy person, there might be no effect or it might be uh, problematic uh, over time to do something like that, activating too much acetylcholine through an acetylcholine um, uh, in, uh, inhibitor. So the the TDCS, uh, I don't think it's in US, it has not been approved by FDA, um, uh, but uh, it has been approved in Europe. So here in Europe where I live, TDCS has been approved for treatment of major depressive disorder. So there might be differences here, um, but the, the interesting thing about TDCS is the cost. So in the end, it's like, it's a super simple device. Constructing one you can do with a battery, basically almost, and, and a few wires. So you can... Uh, and some modulators. I wouldn't recommend anyone to take a battery and stick that to your brain. Don't do it. You will die. Uh, but there's devices out there that are not too expensive. So if you want to experiment with this, the problem with TDCS is that you can't have a device like that constantly on. So you usually have like some kind of excitatory area what it excites in the brain and then you have a uh, the opposite uh, kind of... Uh, uh, the, I think it's the anode and the cathode, the anode, uh, cathode, cathode, I don't remember which one. Anyway, so the other one goes into the part where the signal comes out or the electricity comes out. And that's where there is a reduction of uh, activity. And the depression, there are specific parts in your forehead that you shut down simulta simultaneously as you activate certain parts. And that creates the antidepressive. Uh, or antidepressant effect. And what I find great is that often these things come with little side effects. It's supposedly safe based on research, but I mean, research is still out there. We are bioelectrical beings, so we don't have full understanding of these kind of things, what happens when you modulate with electricity or brain. You know, there's people who are worried about um, electromagnetic fields, like now we are like putting electricity directly to your body. But these things have been used for treatment for years. Like, uh, and, and what I'm talking about when I'm, you're tapping your brain with electricity, it's not like the, the, the kind of like electric shocks that you give to someone who is uh, schizophrenic uh, or, or just, you know, nothing, a response to nothing else. And then you give them or massively depressed and you give them massive electric shocks. No, that's not the thing. So you are basically... Uh, that might be useful for resetting things, uh, but it's a horrible experience. With TDCS, you don't feel anything, like almost maybe a little tingling sensation. It's very hard to say if you're suddenly smarter or more capable for some activities, but uh, 
you can measure some of those things in cognitive tests. Uh, you can necessarily say personally if your mood has improved greatly, uh, but it's kind of that that also shows how hard it is for human beings to really observe transience in in their consciousness, um, especially if it's very gradual. So if there's very very gradual change, you don't probably notice anything going on, but if you measure it over time, you might see an effect. But I I find TDC as a promising area. Um, there's also magnetic stimulation. So that's the application of very strong magnets on the brain. Those things you can't have at home. They, they are expensive and they're used for more serious conditions. But TDCS has shown some potential. But the effect is not permanent. Uh, so if you use it, you probably use it only for 20 minutes at a time. If you use it for too long, there's a reverse effect. So you, you're not getting the results you're looking for anymore. And um, if you want to have more permanent effects, neurofeedback is is one way to go. Um, meditation practice one way to go. So there's there's ways to kind of have long lasting changes on the brain, but um, not necessarily from a TDCS device. Sure, but then I, I see that there are a lot of different tools available, like you know, uh, wearing some uh, headbands. Uh, I think it uh, it's available, you know, on Amazon also probably few hundred dollars that you can draw up for sports people also try out. So there is, it seems like this trend is picking up to try to give minor, you know, electric shock or electric uh, to pass the electric current to your brain to get enhanced performance. But again, these things you cannot, uh, you know, amateurs cannot do at home and you have to do under supervised, uh, you know, guidance unless you get expertise in that but having said that as we see the biohacking movement or neurohacking or life hacking these you know, emerging biohackers neurohackers or life hackers who are these people is it like anyone who wants to uh, do something different or uh, are these uh, groups or individuals how is it working across nations so when it comes to biohacking there's as many definitions as there are biohackers so there are, if, if I just outline a little bit on these different definitions, so there's people who call themselves grinders. They are the most extreme ones. They Im- implant technologies on their bodies and they're interested in transhumanistic ideas. Obviously, you have the transhumanists who are trying, you know, talking about how to transcend what it means to be human. Uh, in that group, there is a lot of discussion on, on life extension and longevity. Also, also cryopreservation, you know, just putting your body into eyes and restoring it to life uh, once medical technology advances enough. Um, now, those guys are pretty extreme. Then on the other spectrum, you have people interested in nutrition and just like, you know, optimizing the bodies and minds with optimal nutrition or exercise. That's a more softer approach. Uh, you can do meditation, you can eat healthy food, you can go for a run. And that's also biohacking. So biohacking to me is the systemic conscious participation in optimizing your biological system. Um, you can be guided by you know, insights from medical literature or using activity trackers or even using technical tools. But in the end, you don't need technology for it. Biohacking doesn't require you to have any kind of technology because your body is already technology. You are already a leverage for a lot of things. Now, you can use food as technology, you can use air as technology, you can use uh, light 
as technology uh, to influence your biology. Now, it's the conscious application of these that makes biohacking. Now, uh, some people also think that biohacking is a measurable uh, way to improve uh, um, health um, expect uh, expectations. Uh, so that's also an interesting way to think about it. Like you can like do lab tests, you can look at your blood biomarkers, you can uh, design a protocol to improve something, then you retest and you might see a change happening. Um, so uh, biohacking is the application of um, hacker ethic to what it means to be human. Uh, hacker ethic meaning uh, any hacker, you can be a hacker in any field. You can be a hacker in astronomy. You can be a hacker in literature. You can be a hacker in computer systems. You can be a hacker in biological systems. Now, hacking doesn't mean that you break into anything. That's a misconception, historical misconception, um, created by media some, sometime in 50s, 60s, when first hack, computer hackers emerged. Um, who were cracking into systems. So those were called crackers. Now, hackers, hackers are any enthusiastic individuals who are interested in how systems work. They're systems thinkers. Talking about hacking as a negative term is, is completely misunderstanding the original meaning and definition of the term. Now, uh, we obviously use the term in you know, the biker's handbook that are written and biker's stress manual that is coming out and other things. It's a, it's a controversial word that draws attention, but what, it, what, what we really do, we redefine things that have existed for thousands of years in a new package. So, so to me, like using technology can be as, as big of a mirror to yourself as any kind of like spiritual practice. Um, so you can use data to become more aware of yourself and you can become more aware of this very present moment if you want. You can influence your state of consciousness and you can observe what's the changes subjectively or you can do it more objectively with instruments so with you know this thing here this is a consumer eeg reader i might you know uh, be able to kind of figure out my ability to concentrate and i might be able to then try let's say some of those nootropics or a cup of coffee and see you know if, if it has any uh, measurable effect now, subjectively, as humans, uh, we are not very good at sometimes observing uh, transient change. We are not even good at observing, like, how is my year today different from last year? Um, uh, we don't remember things exactly how they happened. Uh, we might remember a little bit what happened today, maybe a little bit more about yesterday uh, still, but not really like what happened a week ago at this very same time. But with technology, you can gain insight into, into that kind of process. Uh, and uh, you can, over time, you can measure your blood values and you can see the changes in your body through different instruments uh, that you can try to feel, obviously. Maybe you feel you know, some sensations, some tingling somewhere. Maybe your belly is getting bigger, you think. But you don't really know until you go for a scale or you <laughs> use some kind of measurement device to be exactly sure what's going on. And um, that's the thing, is, is that the data can enable you to have a feedback loop through which you learn faster, through which you gain deeper insight 
more quickly into your uh, current state. And the faster the feedback loops, the faster the learning, the faster you are able to be conscious about yourself. Because I think life is a process of awakening and you can use so many different tools and technologies. You can sit in a lotus position and wait for that to happen. Or you can use technology as a, as a feedback loop. You could use psychoanalysis for it. You can use so many different ways to, to become more aware of your subconscious mind and what it's doing, what the operating system behind uh, the, the, uh, the matrix is doing. Yes, very true, very true. Now, you made an interesting point that is the systems approach that the biohackers are taking because they want, they're looking at the overall system, not just... Uh, focused on uh, that if you have a problem, if you're getting headache, let's just focus on uh, a headache and not worry about where the headache is originating or why is it originating, things like that. So that systems approach is very important. You also made another point about the technology. So it seems that there are there is also emerging trend of uh, implanting technology among uh, this biohacking movement. So which technology implants are getting popular uh, from your observation? Well, you know, any medical procedure that involves fixing like a broken hip with a hip replacement is also already biohacking that's restoring your function. Using eyeglasses to extend your vision or enable you to block certain wavelengths of light is kind of a cyborg technology already. If you use contact lenses, it's not too far from replacing your eye with technology. Now, there is implants that you know some people need to survive uh, or to have a quality of life. So maybe there is a device that modulates at will your uh, central nervous system so that pain signals don't go to the brain or something that stops the seizure where it begins. Now, these kind of implants increase our quality of life by restoring the existing functionality. Now, we can also use implants to extend our capabilities, to take it beyond what it means, means to be human. So you can have artificial legs that help you to run faster and further than anyone else who has real legs. You might have a chip in your hand that you can use to use as keys or, or as a credit card or something that opens up doors or pays for the ticket in a, in a subway. So... Um, you might have your Bitcoin wallet uh, embedded into your hand. But those are quite passive implementations still. They're not super active. And, you, and then when you get into more active implementations, not re just reading a chip through your hand with your phone, which has most of the functionality on the phone and on the cloud, but when you have some functionality on the device itself, maybe it's a sensor, the question becomes, how do you charge that thing? And there is no safe battery technology really that you can just put into your body. I mean, you might have something that uh, uh, kind of fixes, fixes your heart arrhythmias, uh, might have the battery outside of your body, the device is embedded into your chest. Now, there's a lot of people who use these kind of things. And um, uh, I see that medical technology will improve that these kind of implants become safe for human bodies and maybe we'll be able to charge them and and yeah. uh, run a battery on them on a safe way without taking it out occasionally maybe maybe you could use your skin as a solar panel or maybe you could harvest the energy that's already in our body but we are not even close to yet 
like having those kind of implementations on consumer level. So that would be interesting. Yeah. To have that, you know, using the scheme as uh, so you know accessing the solar energy through our steam uh, membrane. Yeah. And then yeah. But the way how I see is that you could have like these technologies to send new information to your nervous system, which then enables you to have an external sense. So there is a company called NordSense that creates this implant that you put on your chest and it basically vibrates every time you face north. And uh, in the beginning, you notice the vibration, but over time, uh, your brain cancels out that signal. It doesn't anymore recognize the vibration, but it senses direction. Now, the brain is plastic and it can change in response to the environment and sensory input. You might have a magnet in your finger, and this magnet might be modulated with a magnetic field around your hand, and that might tell you a direction, a distance to a certain location, so you don't need to pull out your Google Maps. There's a company company uh, uh, that, that created like a um, wristband for your ankle that tells... Uh, through vibration around your leg, uh, the direction. Same, same case here. You know, you don't have to embed it necessarily. It can be on your skin. And over time, it, you start to read that as direction. Now, if you have lost your eye vision, you might learn to use your se sense of touch as vision. So if you have some kind of device that is converting what you see into signals that you can sense with your fingers, then that can enable you to see with touch. So the brain is plastic. It can change um, the way how it works. Uh, the areas of the brain that are de dedicated for certain functions uh, are not uh, fully set on stone. You can modify those over time. But right now, like uh, implants, they are, they are pretty much medical, not, not ready yet for mass market. Uh, it has comes with a lot of ethical questions and implications like, okay, is it okay to put these things into human bodies? But I mean, we are putting things like back science in there. We are putting things like, I don't know, you break your leg, we put some iron in that support it. So why not? Um, that's the question. But there's some religious connotations that, that, that highlight the fact that the body is kind of given to you by higher from higher realms and you shouldn't touch it uh, maybe that that's valid point maybe we don't know what we are working on with here but at the same time like uh, we wouldn't be able to know unless we experiment very true very true we have to experiment and we have to evaluate now it seems there are also uh, i mean you told about magnets that some people are using magnets in their fingers and uh, I read about that too, but it also seems some biohackers are also injecting things that they have created using the CRISPR technology. I mean, they create things and they put it in the bloodstream or they put it in the muscles uh, to modify themselves. How widely used is this practice? Yeah, the, the cases I know, they either are dead or, or insane. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like all these crazy, crazy lab rats doing crazy experiments on themselves. But that's, at the same time, we have to understand a lot of discoveries in medicine has, have actually come from self-experimentation. Have not come from like large-scale studies always, like the discovery of penicillin or the discovery of LSD. Uh, these things were accidents. Uh, uh, serendipity in science, the discovery of um, 
post-it notes, the glue was supposed to be the most, the strongest glue ever, but it required a little bit of serendipity to realize that it was the worst glue ever, but it can be used for something else. So experimentation is important and uh, sometimes, sometimes things just come out um, by accident. You're working on something else and discover something else. And uh, we wouldn't be able to know if we just waited for uh, some placebo-controlled trials for putting a chip on your hand for 20 years. Like, there's going to be people who are going to do these things on themselves. And if someone is creating some kind of cure um, for, I, I remember this, this guy who injected himself <laughs> with stuff that was supposed to cure him from uh, human papillomavirus, uh, he's no longer with us. Uh, so um, sometimes you need these brave individuals who are so certain about their own experiments that it might work. It was Linus Pauling, Nobel Prize winner, who uh, advocated using large quantities of vitamin C. He was so certain about this. And he was, he was one of the pioneers of vitamins and discovery of them, their function. And... Uh, now we know that it's a bit controversial, actually, if you can heal anything with large amounts of antioxidants. Maybe they can actually increase the risk of cancer. So we need pioneers. We need some crazy individuals who are uh, just going to do it themselves if they can't find lab animals for it. Uh, I, I hear you on that, that you know, people are willing to experiment and people are willing to even sometimes sacrifice their own lives, like you said. You know, there are some biohackers that are no more, you know, as they were trying uh, to do different things. So this open sourcing of genetic engineering, I think it, that is perhaps the uh, one that has the most serious implications as the, you know, biohackers or neurohackers or uh, life hackers, as they try to uh, manipulate their system, human system, uh, to either cure some disease or to, you know, get a better performance in what they were uh, hoping for so while you know do do you see that there is enough accountability among these kind of biohackers who are trying to go to extreme levels even willing to sacrifice their own lives do you see that there is some sort of accountability that we can bring in the nature of the experiments they are trying to do because some of them will have impact that would be limited or to just their human body but if they are trying to create some gene or if they are trying to create something and inject themselves with that and if that has interconnected interdependencies it would bring you know bring us cascading impact that will be probably difficult to manage so it is not about whether we should self-experiment or not, but about what kind of ex experiments we should do on ourselves that limits the risk to only us and you know not uh, spread it to the you know larger community. So the question right. is about accountability. So how do we bring accountability? And do you see that accountability amongst all the biohackers you know across nations? Well. It's a good good question. What do we mean by accountability here? Like uh, if you're accountable to yourself or uh, uh, who decides what is accountable and uh, or what is ethically right and or what is okay and what has larger impact and what doesn't. Um, I mean, if you, if you hurt yourself, your family will suffer. Is, is that like uh, 
uh, that you should be accountable to your family members about your future. Now, there's a lot of people who drink alcohol and they do all kinds of crazy self-experiments on themselves uh, with drugs and uh, they are completely irresponsible uh, and they're working with known things that destroy them. Now, if you have someone who is working with some unknown substances or unknown technologies, they hurt themselves. Um, I mean, it's their choice eventually. So I'm a big believer in choice that you can choose what you do, what you want, but uh, simultaneously to be wise enough and aware enough that you're not um, affecting uh, a lot of people around you. Now, if we are working on a bacteria in the lab and it kind of escapes and it destroys humanity, um, that's not good, right? So, but you have to understand that there's going to be people who experiment with these things and they make mistakes and we learn from mistakes. And then there's people who deliberately try to make a negative impact. And it's more likely that it's not going to be the one who is doing these things from pure joy and interest. It's going to be the, the biggest threat is coming from someone who deliberately used this technology to create something uh, out of, out of nightmares. So, um, because you know, making something that really spreads or something that has really cascading effects. You have to put a lot of resources and efforts into it. So if you take something like uh, food and agriculture, pesticides, you know, all that, like gene manipulation of seeds, you know, that whole thing, it's a huge industry. There's a lot of money being poured into it and it's endangering the health of not just single individuals, but the whole global population. We are creating... Uh, bacteria-resistant, uh, uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. We are creating superbugs um, with this kind of practice. It's driven by profit and greed and uh, lots of corporations and their interest. Now, yeah, I mean, as individuals, definitely we have to understand our, uh, our impact in, with the actions that we do. But I don't think there is one single authority who can decide and understand the real implications of something. Because like I said, many discoveries in science that we cherish and we, we celebrate today have come from uh, individuals who decide to self-experiment, to, to try things on themselves. And if we limit that too much, we are limiting innovation. Now, we can, you can bring more wisdom to it uh, uh, through syst different systems and bureaucracy. Certainly, uh, but no, it doesn't always not, work. It doesn't have to be bureaucracy. We don't. It's not always about bureaucracy to bring accountability in our actions. I mean, we uh, are. Yeah, for sure. There, there is, uh, you know, we have all kinds of uh, technology available that can help us bring accountability to our own actions. We can. Uh, all the biohackers perhaps can, you know, be on a blockchain that we can create uh, for all this kind of biohacking, neurohacking or life hacking experiments. And we bring our, there is no need for any bureaucracy there. You know, we bring our accountability by ourselves. Yeah, but at the yeah, same time, yeah. at the same time, we, we know who is working on what experiments. We need to have some kind of uh, database where we know what kind of experiments are happening Absolutely, all across nations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Transparent, so transparency. Transparency. Yes. Transparency. Transparency is key. Uh, I agree. Transparency is important. Um, that these experiments are done not done in secret labs somewhere out there. Um, 
without oversight of some of the people who might be more intelligent to comment what, what you're up to. Uh, but unfortunately, every single superpower today is conducting all kinds of weird experiments in secret labs for national security reasons. And, and they have developed a bunch of technologies and, and interventions um, that work. Uh, but, they, but they're keeping them secret for a future opportunity to use them. Uh, so it's in the end, you know, global politics is all about gaining some kind of advantage of another. And that's a very human thing. It happens on an individual level, you know, how people compete at the workplace or, or when they're kids on the yard, they're, you know, trying to find an edge over others. It's a very human thing, this competition. But on a collective level, it doesn't really elevate our consciousness because in the end, the biggest risk is that we destroy ourselves with our stupidity. Uh, the people who worked on the atomic bomb who did all those experiments, they definitely didn't over, uh, see the devastation that was coming. They thought they're working on free energy almost. Like they, they thought they're solving world's energy crisis and problems. They, they thought it was a noble thing to work on and it turned into absolute nightmare. So then we implemented, after those mistakes, we implemented cultural uh, structures and, and some regulatory structures around those things so that we can manage the problem. So in the end, I believe that we, as humans, we probably need to do some mistakes so that we can become wiser, we can understand our own mistakes. Now, on a collective level, taking you know, the complex the financial markets that is being run by computers, taking the food agricultural system that is run by monocrops and uh, food mass production and, and destroying of natural resources, looking at just like the looting of natural resources on this planet in general and pollution, uh, you know, man-made risk factors. Um, I, to me, we live that time where we have the highest potential. We have the greatest technologies. We have nanotechnology. We have 3D printed organs. We have space travel. We have atom, atomic energy. We have implants. We have artificial intelligence and a bunch of other things that are really cool that could save humanity of its own stupidity that can take us to a new level, maybe transcend what it means to be human. At the same time, simultaneously, we have the highest, uh, craziest existential risk uh, to our survival. As a species, as, as, as a civilization, um, we are in an extended time period now. We were supposed to be already gone. If you look at any civilization in the past, the Egyptians, the Mayans, you know, all of them destroyed themselves eventually. They, they all developed high technology. They created a very complex um, sociocultural structure. They, they were prospering. And then, you know, famines came, some kind of vector trickled down. Uh, it might have triggered by a natural disaster or, or some kind of super bug, um, but eventually they were gone. And um, that, that's, that could happen to us as well. And I believe the only way out is our technological capability. The only way out is to transcend our simplistic human abilities of processing information, understanding complexity. So our scientific method uh, our ability to use a microscope and a telescope and artificial intelligence are all tools to empower us to go beyond what uh, uh, our own stupidity.
in a way to to gain an advantage in situations where we are almost killing ourselves and that's that's the that's the situation where we are right now you know it's a the world is basically a place now where we have atomic weapons in the hands of apes um and and uh, a lot of huge structures let's call those corporations and countries or whose politicians and decision makers are driven by short term interest they don't look at you know what life is going to look like in 100 years they think about their next term they think about their own self benefit next month and that kind of like reward mechanism is not supportive for our survival as species in the long term that's what i'm concerned about if you're looking for any kind of risks Yes, no, I hear you on that, and I uh, firmly believe that uh, I am a firm believer of having freedom to choose and being accountable for everything that happens to us individually and collectively, and that includes our health, our sicknesses, the treatment path that we choose, or uh, the survival of our communities, the survival of our nation, or uh, the what we choose for the empowerment of the humanity. And I'm all for trying new things. Uh, and I, I believe in collective intelligence. This is a time of open sourcing, you know, and with the help of technology. And as we see the machine intelligence uh, growing so rapidly, I am firm believer that we do have to increase human intelligence. And one way is that you know use uh, collective uh, effort of uh, as many individuals as possible to increase innovation all across nations. I am a firm believer of that, and I think we all have something to contribute for the betterment of humanity, for the survival and sustainability of humanity. So there is a, no problem that individually and collectively we cannot solve if we all put our, you know, brain power together. And that is the collective intelligence that we need to develop as we go forward. As the machine intelligence is uh, uh, expanding so rapidly, we do need to uh, come together to come up with our collective intelligence to solve bigger problems and also make sure that you know machine intelligence do not beat human intelligence and we do not uh, uh, come to a stage where we make ourselves extinct because we humans could not collaborate and cooperate and come up together for uh, with collective intelligence to beat the rapidly growing machine intelligence but my concern is that if something doesn't go as planned or hoped for as so many citizens continue to you know get excited and continue to uh, try new experiments some of them you know are wise enough to look at the risk that you know could emerge from that some may not have that wisdom and since we do not have a defined structure or a framework or even a system on which we have transparency we don't know how many biohackers are there across nations we don't know what kind of uh, experiments they are trying to do some may have good intentions some may not have good intentions some may want to you know destroy some nations some may want to destroy uh, crops of some nations or some may want to create pathogens and create some sort of diseases so there are a lot of different variables that we need to be aware about and we need to come up with a system that gives us transparency accountability and at the same time encourage innovation and encourage collective intelligence so perhaps we need to think about using blockchain create a blockchain for biohacking community that uh, doesn't require governance structure but it has self embedded 
uh, you know risk managers who look after each other or just biohackers who uh, give a second opinion about you know what kind of experiments are happening so maybe something like mm. that we need to think about uh, in, again this is not about bureaucracy but at the same time it will give us a collective view of where the biohacking movement is going and what kind of experiments are going on and who is involved and what is their motive sometimes we may be able to find out someone with a bad motive you know, using this kind of system so that is something to think about but having said that what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners and especially the young minds who are trying to make a difference who are trying to solve problems and who are so capable of uh, coming up with some really smart innovations yeah, I mean, uh, you said a lot of wise things over there. Um, humanity needs to definitely move to the next stage. And uh, the way how I see it is that it's not just that we are somehow different from our computer systems or collective intelligence or risk, risk uh, portfolios, but we are all the same. Uh, we are actually our own tools and technologies because we created them and they are now shaping us. Uh, so all that programming that we are doing on different machineries that are then part of our life is actually we are programming ourselves because we are part of the systems and tools that we create. And in the end, um, you refer to blockchain. Now, blockchain implies a movement from centralized control to a decentralized system. Uh, now, uh, which is which has some kind of uh, trust mechanisms that humans can't hack. Uh, and 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 what we have to understand in this context is that what happens there is that we are actually surrendering some kind of centralized control to machinery. And um, when that happens. Uh, Obviously, it's a good thing because the the human link is always the biggest risk. Uh, if there is a middleman, that being a border, some border control agent or that being uh, some individuals calling the shots or someone who is, uh, you know, key to financial transactions, what you will notice eventually is some kind of corruption. And uh, if we replace that with machines that don't have any kind of personal needs or greed, um, we might be able to live in a more sustainable society. Now, having said that, it also means that we are thinking of artificial intelligence and computer systems uh, like blockchain, uh, decentralized systems. What we have to understand is that we are now creating an intelligence that is more capable of complex action than we are as humans. So in terms of uh, interpreting complex data and sensory input and doing decisions based on that, uh, if, if that happens, that we get into narrow artificial intelligence in specific areas or even close to general intelli artificial intelligence, that's when we have to let go of our control as humans. We can't control this technology. Because if you see the microscope, it enabled us to see into the microcosm. The telescope enabled us to see into the macrocosm. Now the artificial intelligence enables us to see into the complexity of, of uh, reality and uh, how to react to it in, or respond to it in, in real time. And uh, 
that kind of machinery will be more intelligent in doing that as humans. So it means that if we look at our political system or our financial markets or, you know, just about any system running it, we should give the control to our machines. And we wouldn't be able, because we are just so simple organisms, we wouldn't be able to understand fully how it makes its decisions. So many people who work on artificial intelligence, they talk right now about, it's like working with alien technology. You have an input, then the algorithms do something, there's an output, maybe the self-driving car stays on the road or not. Then you do an optimization and maybe it improves the situation or makes it worse. Um, there is no way to fully debug and visualize what's going on there because it's so complex and difficult to kind of get to the root here. Now, now it means that as humans, we are not separate from our tools. We are our tools. And it's as much as we are giving away control, what is happening, we're actually merging with our technology. We're becoming part of it. Um, so we are most likely to be creating a most more like a post-human that is a combination of our very tools, our very scientific discoveries simultaneously as we are biological organisms. So a hybrid, a combination of both is more likely than machines taking over, destroying us. Because if they destroy us, you know, there is nothing left. Uh, machines and tools don't do much without our presence. Um, well, you could basically create some kind of self-replicating 3D printing, uh, you know, galactic virus that just spreads from one planet to another, prints itself and sends itself to another planet. Uh, but it would be quite boring. It would take a lot, long time before it evolves anywhere. Probably it will just get destroyed. So um, to elevate what it means to be human is to be able to 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 kind of take that inside that what has taken us here is our relationship with our tools. Homo sapiens is someone who is able to use different tools, language including, mathematics, fire. And as we create our tools, we're able to leverage those tools and take ourselves to the next level. Now, this is the process that everyone should be involved with. So um, if, if, I, if I have some recommendation to anyone is to you know, open up something like Coursera, which is an online learning platform, and look at what are the popular courses there. And think about, you know, all the popular courses. Have you, have you studied any one of those? And what we have right there on top 10 is mainly things related to artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms, uh, synthetic biology, whatever. So it's the coming stuff that is not teached in schools. It's not the most interesting stuff for people to learn on, on, on these massive online course platforms. Uh, so that's super interesting to me. Um, uh, there's a lot of potential. Uh, to extend our capabilities with technology. I wouldn't be that fearful of it. Of course not. None of us need to be fear, uh, fearful about the uh, technology. Technology is empowering. It gives us an ability to reach the next level. And, you know, like I was just talking, the, if we use the blockchain technology to create a decentralized uh, innovation system, to monitor, not monitor, but to uh, get an overview of all the biohackers, what they are working on all across nations. Right now, we just have a silo view about uh, movement 
biohackers movement in Finland, biohackers movement in US, in uh, all different parts of the world. We don't have a collective view of where the biohackers are going, what kind of experiments they are doing, what kind of tools and technology they have created, what kind of uh, uh, better way of uh, doing things that they have created. So if we have a, a decentralized framework like uh, blockchain that gives us a ability to see, have a collective view, that would give us an amazing uh, response to, of collective intelligence to some of the biggest problems that we are facing today. And technology is giving us that ability to set. So technology is giving us the fundamental transformative ability to do what we want to do, to not only uh, bring us more potential, more power, more empowerment to our human body, but also uh, can give us survival uh, techniques and tools for the coming tomorrow. Because like you said, a human race has already overlived and you know, uh, the, we are at a point where uh, this technology warfare that is happening in cyberspace, geospace and you know, is emerging in space. Uh, brings us a lot of, you know, complex uh, security risks. So we need to come up with a way to make sure that all the people who have similar thought process, similar ideology, similar uh, desire and approach to save the humanity, to uh, do something for the benefit of the humanity, that they have a collective view and that they don't work in silos. So thank you, having said that, thank you so much, Timu, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate it your thoughtful insight mm. on biohacking to neurohacking and our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the information you provided on the uh, do-it-yourself movement or the biohacking movement that is growing across nations. And uh, even if a single individual can hack uh, their body without creating interconnected and interdependent risks that would impact others and manage their independent risk effectively based on the discussion, we had today, mm. this is the dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, just to add, like what you're uh, promoting here is radical transparency, like with blockchain technology to make it more transparent what other people are working on. And uh, I mean, we, we would need the same thing for politics. We would need the same thing for corporate decision-making systems so that we, we have transparency and we can backtrack uh, just as we can almost start to backtrack now where our food is coming, we should be able to backtrack where, uh, where our decisions are coming from and who's responsible and, and uh, so that we can also uh, contribute. Uh, it's not only about uh, control. It's not only about observation. It's all also the ability to, to, to um, collectively bring more insight into it. So um, with that, I mean... Um, it requires a fundamental transformation the way how we think about the world. doesn't come with, uh, without issues, doesn't come without risks, obviously. Uh, that, at the same time, uh, a risk is a potential opportunity. So if there is, you know, computer hackers who are hacking into systems, uh, trying to break computer systems, what they are doing in the process, they are making them more resilient, more perfect. Without this activity, of breaking into systems, we wouldn't get secure systems. In a similar manner, without some person experimenting on biohacks and killing himself, 
wouldn't be able to discover then the things that will work. Obviously, we could have be more wiser. We could statistically and through simulation and through just like uh, mathematics and predict, predict, predictive algorithms, we might be able to predict that mm, that might not be a wise decision or that one might, might, might not work. So I think this kind of inquiry is a continuous process in science. It's a, it's a very human thing. And we will make mistakes. We should be ready to also forgive those mistakes. But we shouldn't contain technology. We shouldn't uh, see technology on itself as a threat. Uh, because in the, in the end, it's a very human thing. And with all human things, we will see both sides. We will see the potential, the light, the possibility. At the same time, we see the enormous risk that comes with it. So it's a double-edged sword. It depends how we use it and how wise we are in using it and how well-informed we are in using it. So this kind of enlightenment that comes from education and peer support and using algorithms that are smarter than us is perhaps able to keep us uh, evolving uh, still to a direction where we are closer to a more complex organism that is really then capable to be capable to transcend what it means to be human. So yeah, very, very much uh, thank you for this interview. And uh, if anyone is interested in any of the stuff that I do, you know, you can go to bikingbook.com or if you're interested in our event, you can look at bikersummit.com. Thank you so much, Timo. So Risk Roundup, a global initiative launched by Risk Group, is a security risk reporting for risk emerging from existing and emerging technologies, technology convergence and transformation happening from across cyberspace, geospace and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts fit into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security, so if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk round of risk roundups or uh, to watch the risk roundup webcast or hear the risk roundup podcast please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share until next time i'm jayshree host of risk roundup signing off see you next time thank you